Do you know the improvisations of Vasily Kandinsky? Pause before you embark on that voyage. You will find yourself without a chart, without a compass. Beauty, say these protagonists, is not final. To understand us, you must break through your conventional ideas of beauty. In October 1910, the British journalist C. Lewis Hyde wrote a column entitled Consolations of an English Art Critic, Part 7. In this case, his didactic and conciliatory tone was directed towards the exhibition of the Allied Artists Association at the Royal Albert Hall. And this was of the immediate um, summer, um, sort of from um, May to September. So the exhibition had just come down when he um, published that review. At this exhibition, Kandinsky had shown three oils. Um, Landscape with Greenhouse of 1909, which is um, on the screen now. Um, improvisation 6 of 1909 as well, um, and Composition 1 from 1910, which um, has been subsequently lost. Behind Hines' um, cautionary fireside chat is a remarkably astute observation. It's one of the first commentaries on tendency in the British press, um, and his exhibits in the 1909 um, summer exhibition of the Allied Artists Association have gone completely um, unnoticed. He showed again a couple of oils, um, Winter Landscape and Yellow Cliff, and also 12 engravings. Um, we're not really sure what those 12 engravings are. Um, so it's not only a first commentary on Kandinsky, um, but it's also one of the first attempts in Britain um, to voice something about the reconceptualization of beauty by modernist artists on this side of the channel. The question of beauty had, of course, a particular legacy in Britain, um, and that made it a subject to be fought for. So the slippage of continental ideas into British art practice could be regarded as nothing less than a seed to the illustrious heritage, arguably the foundation of British national artistic tradition. I'm thinking of Hogarth's line of beauty, um, Bach's treatise on the sublime and the beautiful, and then Keats's famous lines, beauty is truth and truth beauty. So surely all this could not be swept aside by a Russian artist who proclaimed that conventional beauty must go by the board. It is Roger Fry, rather than C. Lewis Hind, who is famed for the introduction of post-impressionism to Britain. His call to judge practical life by the imagined resonates with the turn to the interiority of vision prevalent on the continent. His formalist criticism prioritised the character of colours and the break in narration to affect emotional intensity by purely visual means. Um, and I should really qualify these points on post-impressionism because, of course, for Fry, it was um, specifically a French phenomenon. Um, sort of from Gauguin um, to Matisse and um, later just about Picasso um, and of course with Cézanne in the background and here I'm using it um, with Kandinsky and what I'm actually going to be arguing is that there's a much stronger connection to a German um, tradition than, than um, Fry's Francophile post-impressionism allows for. So um, his formalist sentiments about the emotional intensity of, of, of purely visual means um, resonates with Kandinsky's um, similar um, um, sentiments as expressed in his introductory letter to Arnold Schoenberg. And he wrote, The independent progress through their own destinies in your compositions is exactly what I am trying to find in my paintings. Kandinsky, however, never wanted to paint music. Rather, his interest was in the extent to which the structure of music might be used synonymously with formal methods in painting to open up new expressive dissonances in art. So was Fry right, um, or was he wrong, when he called Kandinsky a pure visual musician? 
And how did artists and theorists negotiate the synchrony of different media as the place of that bastion of aesthetic excellence, beauty, was renegotiated for modern times? Within a broader reception of Kandinsky into British painting, um, today I'm going to take the specific case of Virginia Woolf's short story, The String Quartet, and its accompanying, accompanying illustration by her sister, Vanessa Bell, which was published in her first collection of short stories, Monday or Tuesday, um, from 1921. And that's in comparison with Kandinsky's exceptional publication, Clanger, or Sounds, which is a tour de force by, of, sort of creativity by one artist in arguably three forms, text, image, and sound. Um, so here they are, and I'm sorry I've got the Kandinsky in English translation, um, but um, the German wasn't particularly available. So it's for this reason that Klang so interests me. It's a single voice which seems to be grappling across media in a non-theoretical way. Um, and a series of the woodcuts from Klanger were shown at the Artist, Allied Artist Association exhibition in 1911. And this um, has been demonstrated by a postcard from um, the exhibition organizer, um, Frank Rutter. And this is the first half of it. So whilst Kandinsky's exhibiting history is suggestive, um, I've cut the sort of less scintillating concrete evidence I'm afraid today um, in order to focus on some of the intriguing implications um, raised by the comparison. Um, the, sort of, the archival material is all there, but um, it would take me half an hour to tell you that, and that seems to be rather dull. So, Wolf's story, um, The String Quartet, is a short piece of descriptive writing which presents an associative listening rather than an abstract reflection on music as such. And I was thinking about this actually during Gabriel's talk as to whether, he's, whether Wolf's interest is something that's anecdotal um, or something that is um, more structural, and I, I, I really don't have an answer to that. Um, so the music um, for Wolf takes her nameless woman to the mountains and valleys of the Rhone in what she apologetically portrays as silly dreams. As Roger Fry remarked of the whole collection, Wolf was a visual writer, and this story is no exception. Images pile upon one another in, a, in confusion and chaos, and they conjure a rapid sequence of viewpoints that are as decentered and heterogeneous, as crystalline and entire as modernist painting, uh, painterly abstraction. Dora Carrington was to remark um, of Wolf's work, your visions are so clear and well designed. Again, interesting that her time was vision rather than writing or text or narrative. Um, and so how was Vanessa, Virginia's sister, Vanessa Bell, to respond to these, these stories? The answer is with a striking series of four woodcuts, of which the accompaniment for the string quartet is the least illustrative of Wolf's visions, although it's deeply evocative, I would argue, and closely attuned to her subject. So these are just um, three of the four originals. So um, on the left um, is um, the woman on the train from an unwritten novel, um, the middle, the armchair, is from The Haunted House, and then um, the string quartet is, is on the right. Correspondingly, Kandinsky's Klanger, um, here are two pages from that, um, makes tangible a taut dialectic between fracture and unity. In a frank and illuminating comment to his British translator, Michael T.H. Sadler, Kandinsky revealed the fundamental problem with which he was dealing in these texts. He said, the texts have no connection with the woodcuts. I wrote them because I could not express these particular feelings as a painter. There is, however, 
a deep inner relationship between the texts and the woodcuts, and indeed even an outer one. I treat the word and the sentence in a very similar way to which I treat the line or the dot. Michael Sadler described this book as synthetic word painting, unconsciously, I think, echoing Kandinsky's description of, um, of the suite of, of texts and images as a small synthetic work. In the volume, the intersection of woodcuts orchestrates a rhythm of leitmotifs reverberating through the pages to intensify an overall visionary impression. There is a consistency of voice across text and image, which is dictated, Kandinsky would no doubt say, by some sort of stimmen or atmosphere. Plano was to be read as a complete entity, a heterogeneous and dislocated single artwork, um, perhaps formulated with some idea of Wagner's examples work in mind, I'm not sure about it. So in this sense, it is a purely aesthetic counterpoint of total sensation. Again, it's a description of um, another English translation which appears in 1914 um, by the vorticist Edward Wadsworth. The poems in um, this collection manifest visionary moments, complete fragments which turn as the grains of a kaleidoscope from one crystalline image to the next. Pared down and intense descriptions invite the reader to follow sensory movements in the text suggesting rather than affecting what is experienced. This break of narrative structure seems to resuscitate some vitality which is powerful for its direct retracing of mental process. In each text, the focus is action and colour. So, in some things, the shifts around the colour blue. A fish went plunging into the water. He was silver, the water blue. A white horse stood quietly on his long legs. The sky was blue, his legs were long. On the open field a flower grew, the flower was blue. Here, impressions are dissected with a refrain of testimony. I saw him, he was alive, and it was there. Memories that are so forceful that they transpose ordinary situations into an extraordinary imaginary life which is more real than the shadowy cognition of a pragmatically orientated consciousness. Kandinsky, however, was adamant that his was a directing rather than an intrusive hand. He said, in spite of all calculations, this propitious hour comes by itself and determines the moment. As he had said, I simply wanted to shape sounds, but they shape themselves. That is the description of the content of what is inside. Kandinsky's thoughts on his writing process mirror those of Virginia Woolf's. In a letter to Vita Sackville West, she described the wave-like rhythm which seems to take her writing beyond herself. As it breaks and tumbles in the mind, it makes the words to fit it. At the same time, her aspiration was to write entirely, solely, and with the integrity of one's thoughts. Suppose one could catch them before they became works of art catch them hot and sudden as they rise in the mind. In the case of the string quartet, the subject serves as a hook for writing that is barely fiction. Instead, it brings creative process to presence. We are witnesses to that flight of thought that is the foundation of creativity.
exist just yet, but you probably know. Um, so from Wolf, flourish, spring, virgin, vast. The pear tree on top of the mountain. Fountains jet, drops descend. But the waters of the road flow swift and steep, race under the arches and sweep the trailing water leaves, washing shadow over the silver dish. The spotted fish rushed down by swift waters. The yellow pebbles are churned round and round, round and round, free now, rushing downwards, or even somehow ascending in exquisite spirals into the air. That's an early Mozart, of course. And that's why I gave you part of Mozart's um, string quartet, K155. Of course, the reality is it could be anything, which is precisely Wolf's point. This is not outwardly descriptive of, of concert going. Indeed, we know the story to have been written shortly after Wolf attended to private performance of a Schubert quintet, so to excavate the particular composer or piece would evidently be to miss the point. Instead, Wolf explores the quality of auditory perception to stimulate acute, multi-sensory experience. But the tune, like all his tunes, makes one despair. I mean hope. What do I mean? That's the worst of music. I want to dance, laugh, eat pink cakes, yellow cakes, drink thin, sharp wine, or an indecent story. Now I would relish that. Like Kandinsky's writing, Wolf's translation of music into text is articulated through action and colour. Without sound as a mediator, she had, in the same collection Monday and Tuesday, explored the overwhelming sensations of pure colour in the two prose poems, Blue and Green. At the same time, she responded to questions of style based in a letter from Gerald Brennan. I don't see how to write a book without people in it. Perhaps you mean that one ought not to attempt a view of life. One ought to limit oneself to one's own sensations, at a quartet, for instance. One ought to be lyrical, descriptive, but not set people in motion and attempt to enter them and give them impact and volume. The exchange between Brennan and Wolfe construes fiction and description as two contrary methods of writing. Both were worked out separately and together in Monday or Tuesday, for instance, alongside the lyrical examples of the string quartet and blue and green, an unwritten novel is an attempt at setting people in motion. The author quite literally finds a way to enter her subject by inventing a life, which is then dashed when that subject gets up to leave her own. And yet the view of life offered in these cameo pieces, I'm thinking particularly of blue and green and also the string quartet, um, is no less striking for being improvisations around personal feeling. After all, is not all writing so. The final movement of the quartet stimulates a vignette of surreal images for Wolf, and their movements are arrested and characters are settled, condensing and resolving the piece in the listener's mind. The green garden, moonlit pool, lemons, lovers and fish are all dissolved in the opal sky, across which, as horns are joined by trumpets and supported by clarions, there rise white arches, firmly planted on marble pillars. This image remembers. It etymologically regroups disparate moments and sensations past. Remembering is a process connoting variously bodily sensation, the construction of physical space from its parts, and dismemberment, both contextual and physically and mentally fractural. In aesthetic terms, it is the preserve of art to disengage thought from the need of practical action, 
enabling an out-of-conscious experience in which the aesthetic object may be perceived anew, severed from its context and from the demands of our lives upon it. It is in this sense, too, that Kandinsky regarded his painting, and also his writing, and he asked his translator, Michael Sadler, to read his texts without looking for explicit narration. Just let them work on your feeling, on your soul, and I think they will become clear to you. In this light, Bell's woodcut of immeasurable <coughs> string instruments is not a denial of a wealth of plausible imagery, but her own response to her sister's story and the genre of the string quartet more broadly. To be more illustrative would be to risk constricting the evocation of musical experience in her viewer. There is strong reason to suppose that Bell's illustrations were intended as suggestive supports, complementary, but not strictly descriptive. The text itself was that. Bell wrote to Wolfe about her first work for another short story, Kew Gardens. She said, it might not have very much to do with the text, but that wouldn't matter. I wonder, though, whether there is indeed um, the case with the string quartet that there is this proximity or not, or whether subconsciously um, Vanessa Bell had a precedent in mind through which to allude to some of the themes of Wolfe's text. Improvisation 7 of 1910 is a work that was particularly significant for Kandinsky, and it survives in two oils, one on canvas in Moscow, which is this slide, um, and the other on board in Yale. It can be surmised that the Yale version was shown as a study for Improvisation 7 in the Royal Albert Hall in London um, in 1914 as part of these summer exhibitions. Whilst it was the photograph of the Moscow version that Kandinsky sent to Schoenberg by way of introduction alongside that letter from which I quoted earlier. Um, and this was following his discovery of Schoenberg's music at a concert in Berlin in 1911. The subtitle for Improvisation 7 is Storm, and certainly the dynamism from the scumbled, heavily textured paint um, and the paint surface is redolent of flux. Brilliant white scuffs the centre of the image, and it seems to glean tension. With a living presence, paint surges across diagonals, leeching between contours, assailing their logic in the demand for synthetic energy. Kandinsky characterised his use of improvisation as a title um, in his work concerning the spiritual in art. And this work is a particularly apt demonstration of his claims. To my mind, the work affects his new symphonic composition, in which the melodic element plays a subordinate part, and that only rarely. To extend these metaphors to painting, symphonic here would allude to the spatial overlay of simultaneous multiple memories, um, the depth and the richness of experience which cannot be grasped entirely. And this is in contrast to the melodic, which seems to connote linearity, which, although it does not always associate um, with ordered cognition, expresses intention and direction in a way that is more easily perceived. Improvisation seven, is an act of siege against linearity. Forms are pressed, one another, pressed against one another in a denial of linear perspective, effecting a condensation of spaces and moments. But it is equally true that there is a very tense relation here between linearity and immersion, something that is clarified by looking at the third version of this work, which is the woodcut produced for Klanger. The strictures of the medium of woodcut surely focused Kandinsky's mind on formal issues, 
particularly since the German tradition of woodcutting was upheld for its sophisticated dexterity and linearity. What seems to happen in Kandinsky's experiments with the medium is a denial of those qualities for which it was most prized. Everywhere in the suite of um, images for, for, to, for, for the poems, the line is prevented from predominating over the composition, and this is construed instead in a balance of splodges and shading. <coughs> the dynamism remains. The white scuffs are translated negatively into black quavers um, and black scratches, which is evocative of rapid, rapid shading of the fast um, brushstroke that we've got on, on the left, particularly um, in this white area here. Flecks of movement in the muddy green water become near sets of quavers, um, and the path of the oil is obscured. Um, that's over here-ish. Um, um, so where the path is obscured, um, the boat in which the figures are situated is sharpened. Um, that you can see more clearly here. So Kandinsky, um, indeed, in spite of the brave non-linearity of the woodcut, um, stabilizes some of the content of the oil. He prizes structure from obscurity. This is not to say that the woodcut is static, but it does not, um, or it does implement the translation of temporal experience by more overtly spatial means than the oil does. Um, and so there's an architectonic construction here which seems to freeze activity as surely as it suggests it, this tension between movement and spaces. The woodcut of Improvisation 7 appears in the suite of poems besides a text which is entitled In the Forest. It is stretching to find a narrative connection between them, and certainly there are no red trunks thicker and thicker. And we should remember Kandinsky's assertion that it was an inner rather than a representational connection that dictated the relation between text and image. It is surely the same motive that stimulated Wolfe to respond to Bell's self-proclaimed non-analogous non illustration for Kew Gardens. She replied in a letter, a very successful piece, and just in the mood I wanted. <coughs> These are projects which are far removed from the late 19th century art book. Here, correspondence of text and image is arbitrary, but their intersection opens up a visionary space which otherwise would be denied by proximity to narrative content. If Kandinsky and Wolf Bell share an attitude towards the relationship of the visual and the textual, what can be said by way of formal comparison of these woodcuts in particular? Um, and when Lydia first asked me to speak today, she asked me to bring the originals with me. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> they didn't fit in my suitcase. Um, so um, you have to take my word on it that they, <laughs> that, that they, they are closer than, um, than maybe this demonstrates. Um, despite the fact that um, Kandinsky had very much better paper at his disposal um, in 1913-14 than, um, than Bell did immediately after the war in 1920. Um, so the Kandinsky paint, uh, paper is a very nice, thick-grained, ridged paper, um, and unfortunately the Bell is, is much more of a sort of pappy substance. Um, and that obviously affects the way that the ink goes on the paper, but um, you'll have to imagine the proximity. So, although it is possible, according to the exhibition history of the Klanger album, that Bell had, um, had seen Improvisation 7 um, at the um, AAA exhibition, um, I'm not going to make any claim for her definite knowledge of it. I don't wish to, to be quite as concrete. However, there is a very suggestive visual similarity. The scuffed blotches 
diagonal emphases, thick parallel lines, the size of the cello and the size of the boat respectively, and the fand motif, um, again, variously suggestive of sunrise and the Kandinsky, um, and an unidentifiable ground in the bell. Moreover, Bell's employment of the woodcut technique here is such as to function negatively, by which I mean she denies the formal solidity or definable space which would make her subject legible. The instruments emerge from a mass of free-floating black forms. Contours are never fully defined, and the image risks its own dissolution, for a momentary collapse of perceptive attention would render it incomprehensible. Whilst this may be comparatively rare in Bell's work, and I hope that the earlier slides gave you some indication of that, it's very common in Kandinsky's. And in Improvisation 7, black and white reside equally, each functioning so as to differentiate shared spatial areas with a tenacity which threatens the collapse of those very spaces they are deployed to shape. Resolution is suspended. Content is prized from the dialectic of black and white, to hover between positive and negative presence. In this light, it is probing to consider Kandinsky's analysis of black and white in concerning the spiritual in art, where black is described as absolute discord, devoid of possibilities for the future, death, and white, eternal discord, but with possibilities for the future, birth. In a letter to Schoenberg, Kandinsky spoke of his desire for spatial ambiguity, and it is Schoenberg who provides the last suggestive fragment in this speculative contextualization of Kandinsky's reception by Bloomsbury. There is a great tendency in painting to discover the new harmony of constructive means. Um, he wrote, whereby the rhythmic is built on an almost geometric form. I am certain that our own modern harmony is to be found in anti-geometric, anti-logical means. The transition from accepted harmonic form to an anti-logical one is charted in the work that um, most drew Kandinsky to the composer, his infamous second string quartet, Opus 10 of 1908. The opening key of F-sharp minor is put under increasing strain during the first movement, key shifts falling so swiftly on one another that the auditory sensation is of harmonic fracture. The third movement, litany, accentuates this fragmentation. Having recapitulated, the three themes from the previous movements, Schoenberg introduces a soprano soloist in music that denies the tonal stability of the movement's key e flat, uh, e flat minor. Finally, the last movement, Rapture, introduces an associative floating tonality of no fixed key, where Schoenberg instead writes rising sequences in a cello and viola using 11 out of the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. In this progression, each note could settle into a definable key, there are instances of recognisable chords, yet overall the impression is of music freed from harmonic law, or certainly operating under a different one.
stuff again, sorry. <laughs> um, could play that for much, much longer. Schoenberg lays open every possibility. Musical material functions relatively to that which preceded it, rather than being constructed in accordance to an overarching harmonic frame. And this indeed is in keeping with the composer's own statements on form from his treatise The Theory of Harmony from 1911. There are absolutely no notes that are foreign to harmony, but simply notes to which the systems established by teachers of harmony are foreign. In a surprising twist of history, the British public were remarkably engaged with Schoenberg's work following the premiere of his five orchestral pieces, which was offered 1699, um, under Henry Wood at the prom on the 3rd of September 1912. In spite of the ensuing uproar, the Daily Mail critic was astute enough to mention the composer's double life as a futurist composer, a uh, painter, sorry. Here is a self-portrait by Schoenberg um, from 1910, so just after the string quartet. Um, and so when Schoenberg arrived um, in London personally to conduct a second performance of the orchestral pieces in 1914, he was actually greeted um, surprisingly warmly. The Musical Times alone carried four articles on Schoenberg between October 1913 and May 1914, offering thought, um, a thorough discussion of both the theory of harmony and his recent compositions. The Music Club held a party for the composer at the Grafton Gallery, um, which had been previously home to Fry's post-impressionist exhibitions of 1910 and 1912. And in January 1914, um, it was in the Grafton Gallery that Verklechter Nacht um, um, received its first airing in Britain. The second string quartet finally received a London <coughs> premiere in June 1914, so the suddenest, a very rapid um, introduction of Schoenberg um, through a number of concerts in this period. It must be said that this reception is all the more surprising given the ethos of Schoenberg's work, because fundamentally his music does not proceed through accepted or conventional reason, and that was the very quality that the British critics in the press at this time were so fast to harangue modernist painting and writing over. It had no form, um, it had no linearity, it wasn't representational, and um, of course Schoenberg's music is highly ordered and rational and logic, um, but it depends <coughs> on what system you're judging it by. Um, and that's something that the critics seem to respond to in Schoenberg, which is, of course, very different to the reception of painting and writing. In a letter to Ferruccio Bassoni, Schoenberg defined his endeavour to place nothing inhibiting the, the inhibiting in the stream of my unconscious sensations. Astutely, this premise was picked up by the Musical Times at the same time. Um, and the critic wrote, It is this contrapuntal writing by streams of harmony instead of by melodic lines which accounts for so much in Schoenberg's five orchestral pieces. A month later, another article spoke of the works of 1909-11 to demonstrate how the composer throws over almost everything hitherto accepted, i.e. consonants, tonality, thematic use, form, and it retains only rhythm and instrumental colour. He boldly calls this music a mere emanation from himself. The openness of these critics is striking more so for the manner in which their views have been corroborated by subsequent analysis. Brian Sims, for instance, discusses Schoenberg composing in a stream of consciousness, a phrase with startling overtones in the context which includes Virginia Woolf. Schoenberg's texture attempts to balance the linearity of temporal development with spatial presence, together more reflective of human experience. And in effect, this is music of multi-point perspective, lacking a tonal center, but retaining its possibility just as the decentralization of focus confuses the perceptive logic of Bell's string quartet or Kandinsky's Improvisation 7. 
the radical change in the perception of beauty was fundamental to the rewriting, repainting, and recomposing of art for contemporary times. Wolf's concert girl and the protagonist of Kandinsky's In the Forest, um, and George's litany, the, the poem, Stefan George's poem from which it come, came, um, experienced metamorphosis. And it's fully befitting of this new sort of beauty, which might be aesthetically ugly, but is experientially honest. For Kandinsky, creativity in modernist terms is itself understood as a rite of passage that he couches in a description of biblical resonance. This city to which we travel has neither stone nor marble, hangs enduring, stands unshakable. His vision bears intriguing correspondence to the sky suffused with white arches at the end of Wolf's string quartet. The spiritual in art, harmony and experience as exposed by Kandinsky, Schamberg and Roger Fry is after all a discourse which traces the shifting aesthetic of modernism. So what if Vanessa Bell had had Kandinsky's woodcut in mind? How might it inform our reading of Bloomsbury's intersection of text, image and music? And what light might it shed on the elusive piece referred to in Wolf's text? In this rich but speculative context, I would posit that Wolf's story refers to early Mozart only in so much as it could refer to any quartet. That the Schubert quintet she heard shortly before writing the piece provides a closer auditory analogy to the vigour of her description, and that Schoenberg's second string quartet lurks underneath. This realm of imaginative scholarship lays me open to lampoons, particularly from historians. But how different is it from the questions that were first raised by the founders of modernism? How far even from the re-evaluation of beauty itself, from something external apprehended by the senses, to something empathetically and physically experienced by each individual. It is surely within the spirit of modernism to take some experiential license just now and then, and to mix archaeology with aphasia, and to allow a flight to enrich our appreciation of canonical moments of being. <laughs>